0: Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Representative Scott Garrett makes a case against Dodd-Frank's financial reforms. Author Kevin Williamson can't wait for the collapse of the welfare state... Economist Tim Kaine talks immigration reform, reporter Spencer Ackerman discusses drones, and David Stockman unloads on the great economic mistakes of the last few decades. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Five years ago, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision on the Second Amendment. It has come to be known simply as the Heller ruling. It essentially tossed out Washington, D.C.'s ban on most firearms. In fact, all but the most ineffective disassembled firearms were banned in Washington, D.C. before the Heller decision. And, of course, that kicked off a, a new round of litigation over court fights over the Second Amendment. And I'm joined by the three men who won that case. Alan Gura of and Pozeski, lead counsel of D.C. v. Heller. Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute, co-counsel District of Columbia v. Heller. And Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and also co-counsel for D.C. v. Heller. So just to get started here, Alan, you worked on uh, the cases, many of the cases that followed. What was the immediate impact of the Heller decision in terms of where did the question go immediately after Heller?
1: Well, immediately after Heller, the question became whether or not the Second Amendment applied to states and units of local government as well as the federal government. Of course, Heller announced that the Second Amendment secures a meaningful individual right, but the Bill of Rights does not apply directly to the states and local governments. We needed to find out whether the Fourteenth Amendment applied the Second Amendment as against the states just like it does with other provisions of the Bill of Rights. And so we filed another case, McDonald v. City of Chicago, and in 2010, the Supreme Court held that, in fact, the Second Amendment is applied through the 14th Amendment to states and localities. That, of course, was quite significant because most gun control regulations exist at the state and local level. There are some federal gun laws, but for the most part, when people interact with a law enforcement uh, figure in relation to their firearms, they're dealing with a state officer or local police officer. And so it's important— to make sure that we have the protection for the right to keep and bear arms, as against local governments, and we got that in McDonald.
0: All right. So uh, since McDonald, gentlemen, please jump in here. Where have we gone since then? Now that we know that states uh, are equally, I guess, constrained as the federal government.
2: I think the question in the wake of Heller and McDonald is going to be whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is going to be a genuine, meaningful right like the right of free speech, for example, the right of free exercise of religion, or whether courts will instead treat it as a fundamentally meaningless right, a right that courts will sort of go through the motions of pretending to protect while allowing the government to essentially do anything that it wants, as courts typically do with respect to economic regulations and property rights. That is still shaking out, and despite, I would say, fairly strong and unmistakable language in both Heller and McDonald, that the right to own a gun should be considered fundamental, the lower courts are still, many of them, looking for ways to essentially drain that fundamental right of any meaningful judicial protection in the same way that they do, again, with with economic regulations and other rights deemed non-fundamental by the courts.
3: I think to put this whole process in context, we conceived of this from the very beginning as a three-phase project. Phase one would be determine what it is that the Second Amendment means. That was accomplished in Heller. It means, at a minimum, a right to be able to bear arms for self-defense in your own home. Phase two was to determine where it is that the Second Amendment applies, and that was finalized in the McDonald case. The Second Amendment applies everywhere within the United States, not just federal jurisdictions such as Washington, D.C. Phase three is the phase that's uh, now in process, and that is determine the scope of the Second Amendment. Even though a right is guaranteed under the Bill of Rights, that right is not absolute any more than the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law infringing on free speech. And yet we have laws against defamation, against falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater, incitement to riot and on and on and on. So these rights, even though expressly set forth in the Bill of Rights, are subject to reasonable regulation. That's what's unfolding at the moment to find out just what is Determined by the courts to be reasonable regulation.
0: How has uh, public opinion affected this whole thing? We had, you know, obviously Hiller was a huge Supreme Court decision. But we also know that courts are not ignorant totally of public opinion.
1: Well, it's difficult to know how public opinion shapes the court's behavior. Obviously, judges are human beings. They are supposed to apply the law objectively and dispassionately without regard to their own personal biases however uh, it is true that large segments of american society are essentially not familiar with firearms don't like firearms perceive no utility in firearms and so to this segment of the population any gun regulation would appear to be reasonable and appropriate no matter what kind of burden it places upon the right and there are people who become federal judges who come from that sort of background and so those types of ideas do filter into some opinions we are seeing some opinions that uh, seem to think of the ability to use and possess a firearm as a social evil, one that is to be suppressed and that uh, no regulation could possibly infringe upon. And that's a problem. At the same time, we do see other judges who take Heller and McDonald more seriously and do try to faithfully apply those cases and the strong language that they contain.
0: That recent polling data, though, indicates that even though most Americans believe gun crime has gone way up, they still think that Congress should probably just move on to other issues and not try to institute more gun regulation?
2: Well, it's important to know that, in fact, gun crime has gone down, both gun crime and gun violence. There are far fewer deaths from gun accidents today than there were 50 years ago. And there are fewer gun homicides every year that goes by. So there's really no substantial argument to be made for the proposition that an increase in gun regulations leads to an increase in gun safety. If anything, the evidence seems to point the other way. And so I think that that is a fairly weak basis in the eyes of the public for expanding gun regulation. I think it probably accounts for the overall lack of strong enthusiasm for expanding gun regulation, even in the wake of of tragedies such as the one at Sandy Hook.
3: Indeed, we have about 250 million guns in circulation and probably about 500,000 a year acts of violence committed with a gun. Now, that means even if a separate gun were used in each of those acts, that about two-tenths of 1% of the guns are used in these uh, violent acts. So if there were to be enacted a uh, ban or a constructive ban on a particular firearm, that would be 99.98% over-inclusive. And of course, the Constitution will not permit of such over-inclusions.
0: Now, uh, Bob, you recently got, I guess, caught up in the debate over a particular gun regulation that was the mentioned to Me legislation, and you said that there were things worth having in there in exchange for other benefits. Can you lay those out just a little bit?
3: The Manchin-Toomey compromise bill I thought should not have been enacted as it was structured, but with a few modest improvements, it might have been worth considering. The Manchin-Toomey bill would have extended background checks to private buyers at gun shows from other private parties. They're already covered by a background check if you buy the gun from a licensed dealer. So if there was a private purchase at a gun show or a private purchase over the internet or a private purchase as a result of a posted ad, say in a newspaper or on Craigslist, then the Manchin-Toomey bill would have extended background checks to cover that. I don't believe that that extension would have had any meaningful impact on gun violence. As ordinarily, we do not pass more gun regulations unless we can show that they have no meaningful impact. But in this case, I believe that there were substantial improvements, positive things for gun rights advocates included in the Manchin Toomey bill, and that that trade off of extended background checks, very slightly extended, in return for these improvements. Would have been a good package deal that gun rights advocates should have supported and included among the improvements were such things as interstate handgun sales, layers of protection against the federal registry, diminution of the maximum amount of time for background checks and liberalized rules for interstate transport and a handful of others as well.
0: Now, uh, most recently, the federal government has claimed dominion over a set of plans that have been produced on the Internet for what is – a 3D printed gun, something that would have not been considered certainly by the founders and by most of us even just a few years ago. What do you think of the essential elements when we're talking about fighting over this particular issue?
3: Well, I wouldn't be too concerned about home access to 3D printers to produce homemade guns. Uh, each of these printers, as I understand it, costs anywhere from 1700 to $8,000. Nobody's going to spend that kind of money if they're going to want to produce a gun simply because the parts to the gun are $35. The economics of the matter suggest that we don't have to be worried about unlicensed persons in their homes creating loads and loads of guns that are plastic in nature
1: and would otherwise have been barred. There is a significant First Amendment concern over the government's behavior in this regard. Information about firearms, including firearms designs, instructions on how to build and use firearms is pure First Amendment protected speech. Americans, for centuries, have exchanged information about the production, maintenance, and use of firearms. And just because those instructions are broken down into a machine code for the production of a gun doesn't make them any less protected by the First Amendment. Of course, if a person were to manufacture a firearm, even without a 3D printer, that uh, contained features that uh, are appropriately uh, subject to a prohibition, that would be one thing. But the idea that government is going to stifle an emerging technology... And in a way that restricts people's ability to exchange scientific and technical information is one that we should all be very concerned about. Of course, the implications are much broader than simply the area of guns.
2: I want to agree with Bob that this is really sort of a tempest in a teapot and, and also agree with Alan on the First Amendment issue. But I, I want to add that It seems to me the government's stated concern here is that people will be able to essentially manufacture untraceable and unregistered guns. And I think it's a fairly silly concern when you look at it because we've had a zero tolerance war on drugs for more than 35 years, and it hasn't made the slightest bit of difference in terms of the difficulty of acquiring illegal drugs. And if somebody who wants a firearm doesn't have to make it at home, they can go out and acquire it on the street. And the state of the technology for these 3D printable guns right now, these are not very effective firearms. If you wanted to do something bad with a firearm, you're going to go buy a gun on the street the way criminals have always done and will continue to do.
0: Yeah. At least all the videos I've seen of people firing the guns, they're doing so with a rope and then they're behind a wall. One other thing I wanted to talk to before we leave this discussion is that since Heller, it seems that a lot of the fight has become over the degree to which local governments can regulate out of existence the functional right to own guns. Of course, D.C. was also an example of that. But you know, where is that fight going right now?
1: The fight continues. There are laws that are being struck down, and there are some laws that are being upheld. And again, it depends on whether the court takes seriously the idea that this is a fundamental right that's on par with others in the Bill of Rights, or whether it's a court that sees guns as a social evil and Heller as a non-serious and perhaps temporary precedent. And uh, it's going to take more litigation, and I think it will eventually require the Supreme Court to step in at some point and clarify what the Second Amendment might mean. I think that uh, it's uh, strange to suppose that the Supreme Court would have given us these two decisions, in Heller and McDonald, only to then step away and allow the right to become meaningless or uh, basically a disregarded by the lower courts. I think the Supreme Court intended for this to be an actual feature of American constitutional law, one which it would revisit from time to time as needed.
2: I'd like to follow up with a concrete illustration that that's both amusing and I think enlightening from a case that Allen litigated called Izzell versus City of Chicago, in which the city of Chicago responded to the McDonald litigation in part by enacting a new set of gun regulations that required people who wanted to get a gun permit to have regular training on a firing range. And then the city turned around and banned firing ranges within the city of Chicago. When this case went up on appeal – I'm sorry, when this ordinance went up on appeal, the city's lawyers had to try to figure out some way to defend it to justify the decision to outlaw private firing ranges and the explanations they gave in court were – laughable. One of them was a supposed fear of lead contamination. People coming off of firing ranges might have lead on their hands and spread that around the environment. It should be noted that the city made no effort to impose, for example, uh, procedures on people leaving government operated ranges so that they would you know, wash their hands or somehow uh, take care of the lead coming off of their hands there. The second explanation was even more laughable, which was that people would congregate at firing ranges. uh, Criminals would congregate there to try to steal guns from people who were coming off of the range. Now, having grown up in Texas and been taught to shoot at a young age, I can tell you there are two kinds of people at firing ranges, military and law enforcement who can presumably take care of themselves and people who have spent their whole lives fantasizing about the day when someone would try to take their gun from them so they can use it to defend themselves. These were completely preposterous justifications for the law, but it illustrates the difference I was alluding to earlier. Are courts going to require the government to provide genuine, compelling justifications for gun regulations, or are they going to allow the government to get away with any kind of invented uh, explanation for the law that they want, um, as they do, for example, in economic regulations? We still don't know the answer.
1: Another reason that they gave is that gun rangers are places where people would congregate to fire guns. And firing guns, of course, is dangerous. But that's kind of like saying that the highway is a place where people go to burn gasoline. And, uh, of course, uh, running your car an internal combustion engine is not the same thing as throwing a Molotov cocktail. But that's the way that uh, Chicago at least approaches the right and the Supreme – in the uh, Seventh Circuit in that case, smack down the city fairly harshly. We might have
3: preferred that the Supreme Court would have solved all Second Amendment problems in one – Decision, But the court did in Heller and in McDonald, as it does in so many other areas. And that is it bit off the minimum amount that it had to bite off in order to resolve the problem that was brought before it. In Heller, we contested an outright ban on handguns. We contested a ban on carrying firearms within the home from room to room without a permit. And we contested a ban on having functional long guns in the home. The Supreme Court addressed each of those and resolved those problems, but in doing so, it left a whole lot of wiggle room, a whole lot of opportunity for opportunistic state and local governments to try to circumvent the court's holding. Now the court is going to be required to step in and put a stop to that, we would hope, that the court will take that opportunity and now begin to draw some bright lines that were not drawn in the Heller case.
0: All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Alan Gura, Bob Levy, and Clark Neely, the three attorneys responsible largely for the Heller decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. You can read more on gun rights and the Second Amendment at our website, cato.org. The financial reform known as Dodd-Frank is unconstitutional, and if that's not enough for you, it gives vast powers to unaccountable bureaucrats to control financial transactions. That from Republican U.S. Representative Scott Garrett. He spoke at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in April.
4: Let me just begin by saying, though, despite all the accolades, that I think the title is a little bit off. Dodd-Frank is not a piece of legislation or of law that is of questionable constitutionality. I would say that it is, without question, unconstitutional. And I, for that reason, I say I opposed Dodd-Frank when it came through the House for a vote, not simply because it was a bad bill that was done in a less than um, efficient manner, that we could have done it more efficiently and such, but basically because it was unconstitutional. And those are really two very different things, to say that I'm voting against something because I think it's just not done well, versus voting against something because it is unconstitutional. One thing to oppose a bill to say, well, I think I am smarter than the other side or I have more wisdom than they do, but it's entirely another thing to oppose a law because, well, because it basically violates the very principles upon which this country was founded and upon the founding fathers' documents, i.e., the Constitution. As this audience knows, I believe that uh, our Constitution establishes a government basically of restraint. It enumerates a series of few and defined powers. It defines those powers and responsibilities among three branches of government. And in doing so, it basically establishes a system of checks and balances, in which basically if one branch becomes overly ambitious, it is encountered countered by a, uh, countervailing balances from one or two of the other branches. But rather than establish a regulatory regime that is consistent with those constitutional principles, Dodd-Frank then is the great exception to the Constitution. Dodd-Frank does so by doing what? By creating not just one, but two agencies that are granted basically unlimited power to define and pass rules to regulate every conceivable financial transaction, and does so without being accountable to anyone. These two agencies, of course, are CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And they basically are effectively uh, the judge, the jury, and you could also say the executioner of the institutions they deal with and the American economy as well. So what I'm gonna do right now in the next few minutes is to argue that the manner in which these agencies operate are uh, without question in violation of the constitution. And my arguments, I will also add this, are not purely academic in nature. I will also basically show that in overstepping these constitutional frameworks and boundaries of legitimate government, they actually have real effect, real negative effect on real people like you and I. And so the best place to start is the topic dealing with most attention in the news, and that, of course, is the unconstitutional recess appointment of uh, Richard Cardray over as director over at the CFPB. Now, we step back for a moment before President Obama was President Obama. Of course, he was Senator Obama, not very long for Senator Obama, but in that short period of time, he must have been amazingly, incredibly perceptive. Because he knows now, as president, better than the Senate does, exactly when the Senate is actually in recess. So a recess appointment made when the Senate is not in recess is devastating to the system for a number of reasons. First, the president's actions effectively erase the advice and consent clause of the Senate, from the apportionment laws. And it basically then goes back to what I said before. It imperils the checks on the executive powers that the founders thought was necessary to do what? To prevent the emergence of tyranny in the government. Secondly, well, secondly, technically speaking, it opens up another large can of worms. When the president recess appointed Richard Cordray as director, at the same time as you probably know, he also appointed three individuals over the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, which courts have already struck down as unconstitutional. And now since the court's ruling, and that was back a couple months ago, back in January, the NRL rulings during the tenure when he was in, when they were in, when those illegal appointments were made, there are no less than 72 cases in federal court right now challenging the rules that came about. So if the NOB rulings can be challenged, and they will be, does it follow that the CFPB rules will be challenged as well? And if they are, and they probably will be, won't this have huge, huge implications for all of us? For example, if the CFPB adopts a Qualified Mortgage Rule, or as commonly known as QM, this rule basically effectively defines for all of us what a proper or qualified mortgage is in the country that you may get for a new house you buy. So it defines the terms of those loans for all of us. So we have a potential situation here now, right? If that is challenged, And if we find that Mr. Cordray was illegally, unconstitutionally appointed, and now sits there as an illegitimate head of CFPB, what happens to all of the rules? If that happens, it is only a matter of time before the QM will be challenged. And if that happens, what will happen? You will have effectively chaos in the housing mortgage market situation. Uncertainty, which we have already, which is what we we're trying to undo, will just be exacerbated for any potential new homeowner going to the bank, going to the bank and trying to get a loan. But let's take, for example, let's be optimistic. Let's assume for a moment and pretend that the CFPB director was appointed in a constitutional manner. Maybe the Senate confirms his nomination. Even if that is the case, I would suggest that the CFPB is still an unconstitutional monster. Look, the CFPB mission is to prevent practices that it is empowered to define as unfair, deceptive, and abusive. And with the limitless grant of authority, there are no checks, if you will, placed on them. Secondly, it is well known that the CFPB nullifies Congress's greatest power. To, as far of a check on the executive And you're always asking yourself, what is that great power? The power of the purse. It was James Madison who called the power of the purse and the powers that Congress has, the most complete and effective weapon we have. Now Dodd-Frank basically disarms that weapon by funding the CFPB How? through the Federal Reserve. They simply have to ask for the money, and the Federal Reserve gives us. It. it does not go through the regular appropriation process in Congress. At add all that, and there's even more problems. The CFPB Director is exempt from Executive Branch Oversight. While the director is appointed by the president for a five-year term, he can stay on there basically indefinitely if no successor is confirmed in the Senate, and the director can be removed only under strictly limited circumstances and not for anything but for policy reasons. So you take all that, take the fact that CFP is headed by a singular regulator with unlimited power, is not accountable to the legislative or the judicial branch, and cannot be removed until the Senate confirms someone else, there's a problem.
0: In his new book, The End is Near and It's Going to be Awesome, National Review's Kevin D. Williamson examines the crisis of the modern welfare state and demonstrates that the crucial political failures of our time, from education to health care, are the direct result of government monopolies providing and regulating these services. He made his case at the Cato Institute in May.
5: I've spoken a lot about how we go about solving social problems to student groups and young people, and I was a teacher professor for a while. And the sort of abstract economic arguments puzzle them, partly because they don't take economics anymore. And if they do take economics, they get taught advanced applied math rather than uh than economics, which is a sort of different subject. But there are things that they understand, there are things that people understand. One of the visual aids always like to use in the sort of recurring motif in my book is uh, you all remember this Oliver Stone movie Wall Street I'm sure and the character of Gordon Gekko who gets sort of hung around our necks you know greed is good poster boy for capitalism but what I like is that famous poster of him using the Motorola cell phone from 1984 because I am a nerd I have an interest in the history of technology and, and cell phones and such uh, this is the 40th anniversary by the way this year the first cell phone call It's been a mixed blessing, obviously, in some ways. But, um, you know, that Motorola brick he had cost almost $10,000 in uh, 2013 dollars. It cost nearly $1,000 a month to operate. Had something like 42 minutes of talk time, a couple hours of standby. Couldn't play Angry Birds on it or, you know, trade a stock or check your email or send a text message or anything else. You had to be Gordon Gecko to own one. They were expensive. In fact, the very first time one ever appeared in an American movie, I want to say it was in 16 Candles, and it's in a Rolls Royce. You know, it's the car phone in a Rolls Royce, because that's where they were. And now you talk to, uh, you know, college students, you talk to people who are not Gordon Gecko, who are not millionaires, and everyone has this in his pocket. You know, there's a lady who runs a coffee shop down the street from my office in New York. She's an immigrant from Bangladesh, and she has the same cell phone the President of the United States does. Uh, It's an amazingly egalitarian outcome. But you can bet, you can bet everything that her kids don't go to schools that are as good as where the president or someone like that sends their kids to school. Her retirement certainly won't be as good. Her health care certainly won't be as good, uh, at least her health care financing and access. So we've got this weird situation. Who was it over at the New York Times? I always forget. Was it Friedman, his uh, Jetsons and Flintstones thing? One of those goofy things you, one of those ideas you come up with, you write a book, you write a column, but it's actually kind of a useful idea, where you've got essentially two very separate economies and two very different kinds of economies. And one of them, everything gets better and cheaper and better and cheaper. And the other one, they don't. We've got three really important sectors of the economy that are largely dominated by politics. Those are education, which is almost entirely the local monopolies. Uh, 91, 92% of students go to uh, public schools. You've got healthcare, which even before, the ACA was 50% government spending. It was a sort of half socialized system before we got around to uh, making it a worse three quarter socialized system. And then you've got uh, pensions, which is dominated by Social Security, of course. Medicare is, is sort of a piece of that if you look at retirement more broadly. And you've got a system into which people are paying 12.5% of their income for their entire lives and getting something out of it that is not at all related to uh, what they put into it. One of the worst debates we ever lost is this idea that Social Security is some sort of investment. So we end up with this situation in which we've got three really important parts of the economy, and some other important ones too, but these are the three that really leap out, that are dominated by systems that don't work. And there's a tendency among those of us who write about politics and yell about people about politics all the time to read all this through uh, the sort of familiar ideological filters. And I wanted to try to take the argument to, to a little bit beyond will markets work and government bureaucracies don't, and that's the end of the discussion. Because I think there's a bit more to be said to it about it than that. Because the question of why markets work is something that is not, I think, always particularly well understood. Most people think it's largely about profits and incentives, but I don't think that really tells the whole story. And of course, being in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, there have certainly been more sophisticated versions of this argument made than mine, one of them by F.A. Hayek, but uh, not everyone's going to, be, going to be reading that. So we have a problem that is related to something Hayek and Mises both got into, which is the problem of complexity. I started off the book with a uh, sort of retelling of Leonard Reed's great essay, I Pencil, which is one of my favorite things. I read it when I was a kid, and it sort of always stuck with me. You've got a... Process, not only in the marketplace, but also in the nonprofit sector of things like Wikipedia, things like Kickstarter, where you've got lots and lots of people working on problems from lots of different angles. Everyone making small improvements, things that add up in the aggregate over a long period of time to real dramatic improvements from the Motorola brick to the uh, iPhone from $10,000 to we'll give you one for free if you'll sign up with our service. But obviously the schools aren't improving at the same rate. They're not getting better and better every year and cheaper and cheaper. We're now spending about twice in real dollars per capita what we spent on education 30 years ago. You may have noticed that we're not getting twice the results. We'd be lucky in most places if we were even getting the same results we were 30 years ago. Healthcare is one of those weird things where you've got a system of paying for things that's very disconnected from the market itself. So we've got really incredible things in the marketplace, you know, stents simple little thing, stent, it's basically a straw with medicine implanted in it. But for a lot of people, it's made open heart surgery an unnecessary thing. You know, it used to be something wrong with your heart. They had to saw you open, break open your ribs and do open heart surgery. It was crazy. Now we have outpatient procedures, stent, you're in, you're out. But your system of paying for that is, of course, what do you think, 19th century, maybe early 20th century. And it shows up throughout the uh, marketplace. You know, one of my... uh, one of the things that drives me crazy in life, I should, one of these days, just write a long essay about this, but if you go into a doctor's office, you nurse they hand you a clipboard and they ask you medical questions and you fill it out pen and paper for your medical records? Now, if you owe them money, they use the credit reporting system, which is an enormously sophisticated piece of information technology that can find you anywhere in the world and discover exactly how much money you owe to whom and for how long and under what terms when it comes to your actual health records. It's well, tell me if you're allergic to anything. Tell me if you're this, tell me if you're that. You know, it's uh, we're using technology that, you know, Isaac Newton had. We're just one step up from a quill. (laughs) It's crazy. And this is, of course, what happens when you have a marketplace in which there's no need for consumers and producers to negotiate with one another, where everyone's interests are adverse to everyone else's. And there's no of that, you know, sort of iterative, repeated relationships that make life so much easier everywhere else. So the thing about where we are. With the money end of the situation is simply that these obligations are never going to be met. They're not. We've got, you know, again by my count, something like 140 trillion dollars of liabilities and zero dollars to pay for them. And if you ever try to talk to people about the national debt and things related to it, you know, when you say trillion, people just kind of go. Hey, numbers all sound alike at a certain point. I was an English major, so anything above like sixteen. You know, I've got to, I've got to check twice. So, you know, 100 billion, 100 trillion. It sounds the same. You know, I was just over at the House speaking to a couple of members of Congress, and uh, they at some level know the difference between 100 billion and 100 trillion, although you wouldn't necessarily know it to uh, <laughs> see how they operate. But so to, get, to give you a scale of that, you know, $140 trillion is just about two times the GDP of the planet. It is approaching the value of all the financial assets in existence in the world. All the money in all the bank accounts, all the stocks and bonds, everything. It doesn't add up to that. And the thing to keep in mind, of course, is that we're not the only country with liabilities. So you've got other countries with similar sorts of liabilities, everyone going into the same marketplace looking to take this limited pool of capital and finance obligations that are a multiple of it. I don't know what the global number adds up to of government overhangs, but... You'd have to use scientific notation and get someone like Mike to explain it to me, but it's going to, be, it's going to be huge. So there's just a 0.0% possibility that things like Social Security and Medicare are ever going to be paid out at anything like their present value.
0: It's not an ideal immigration reform, but a robust and large guest worker visa program would accomplish two goals. First, it would channel healthy and peaceful people into sectors of the U.S. economy that demand their skills. Second, it would reduce the pressure of immigrants seeking to enter illegally, focusing border enforcement on security and health threats. Tim Kaine of the Hudson Institute discussed immigration reform at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in April.
6: My wife's an immigrant. And I'd like to think she made America a little prettier and a little smarter than it was before. She got an MBA here. Um, but I've seen a lot of the problems that Greg's talked about. You know, But I've really come to this issue as someone with a military background. Uh, went to the Air Force Academy, served overseas. And uh, I'm really surprised that more people don't think about immigration in terms of what the real problem is, the real threat of immigration. And it's not economic. And I've studied the literature on this. And one of the things that Glenn and I found when we did our history, we did our economic history, is time after time, great powers, and I'm talking about ancient Rome, Ming China, the Ottoman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, when they declined, it was always because of economic imbalance. It was not enemies at the gates. Enemies at the gates made them worry about losing their power or being invaded and then do stupid things economically where they would build walls And we all know about Hadrian's Wall in Rome. We all know about the Great Wall in China. But they would build economic walls, too, to cut themselves off. The Ming Chinese thought they'd learned everything about the rest of the world. You know, Zheng He's treasure ships, when they came back after all those voyages, suddenly there was an emperor that said, we don't have anything great to learn anymore from the rest of the world, burned all the ships, and made it punishable by death to build an ocean-going vessel to leave China. That's a kind of wall against free trade. So what we worry about is America building economic walls, not just the literal walls, but the economic walls. The hostility to free trade that we see largely among Democrats, the hostility to immigration that we see, I think at least this is the media narrative, largely among Republicans Restrictionism, economic restrictionism on immigration is self-defeating. The economics of this are in a world where we've got free trade agreements with Mexico, there's going to be trade and a free flow. So a worker can be in Mexico and work at a factory and ship the goods here, or we can have a guest worker program where they could come pay taxes in America, work in an American company, help a company thrive here. The economic literature on this is pretty unequivocal, that there's not a risk to high-skill immigrants, more of them, the more the better, but there's really not an economic risk or damage to low-skill immigrants. They help the housing market. I think Greg made a great point here. So part of this book again is trying to make the point let's not build economic walls because we're not going to decline in 10 years america won't decline in 100 years decline of a great power at the heights that america's reached that takes at least a century probably two but that doesn't mean our politicians aren't trying to go down that road so we're going to try to get a little warning sign up there embrace openness embrace liberty it's really worked for us in the past i don't think we can talk about this issue without also talking about what's happened in Boston because the terrorism in Boston, a lot of people have said, see, these were immigrants. They were from a dangerous part of the world. They were from Russia. You know, maybe we should be cautious. Great powers do that. They get cautious. Let me tell another little anecdote. Julius Caesar was killed by a gang of eight senators, right? Making a gang of eight because Julius Caesar was open to immigration. He granted citizenship to non-Italians in the Roman empire. And that was offensive to the elites in the Senate. So fortunately, our gang of eight is very different. They're open. I'd like to think our president's open, but I don't see him embracing a lot of the common sense things like a guest worker visa. You know, We're still waiting for the White House to say thumbs up on a guest worker visa. That's the heart of what we need to do economically to make this program work. And it's in this bill and it's very smart. So there are people that think what happened in Boston is a sad day for immigration reform. I think it's actually something that should be addressed because security is the problem, right? In in the intel business, I was a human intelligence officer in the Air Force. When you're looking for bad guys, you're looking for needles in a haystack. And the bigger that haystack is, the bigger your problem is. So if we have 10 million illegal immigrants in the country that are here to work, to be good members of society, that pay into our tax system, and yet There's a whole market of forged documents and bad documents that they need to do to be here. That's tremendous cover if you're a bad guy, whether you're trafficking drugs or whether you plan terrorism. And what frustrates me is we have a finite amount of government resources. And if so many of them are directed at solving a problem that's not a problem, I mean, economic migration, and not directed at terrorists and and criminals, you know, that's danger waiting to happen.
0: Senator Rand Paul's recent filibuster on the topic of drones brought widespread public attention to the issue. Now lawmakers are beginning to ask important questions. Namely, is the use of this technology for surveillance appropriate? And if so, what risk will a drone program pose to civil liberties and individual privacy? Spencer Ackerman, national security editor for The Guardian U.S., discussed drone technology at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in April.
7: let's talk about the technology behind these flying robots of death. There's kind of a meme out there about what drones are. The idea is these are things that fly around without pilots that spy on you according to algorithms that uh, determine where and how they should spy on you for what duration. And then when they see a bad person, they kill them. And none of that is really true. The further you dig down in that, you find that these are a bunch of either badly articulated or just badly understood observations. So what do I mean by that? The first thing is, don't think of the drone as the stuff it carries. Don't think of it as the sensor packages and the cameras that spy on any that spy on people. And don't think of it as the weapons they carry that strike people. All these things are... airframes, and nearly all of them in use currently in the military. And according to one study, as of January 2012, one in every three U.S. warplanes, be that fixed wing or be that uh, rotary wing like tilt rotors or Ospreys or helicopters, is a robot. Nearly all of these things, as they're used, have a pilot somewhere whether that pilot is hundreds of miles away on places like Bagram Airfield for the war in Afghanistan, or whether they're 7,000 miles away from where they're used at places like Nellis and Creech Air Force bases. When you go into the cockpit, or what's called a ground control station of a predator uh, or uh, its, its bigger, badder cousin, the Reaper, what you see is something that's not totally unfamiliar to the history of of manned aviation, you've got someone, in the Air Force's case, it's an officer, in the Army's case, it's an enlisted warrant officer, the Navy hasn't really decided this stuff yet, Um, sitting in a freezing cold, very refrigerated box, usually with a contractor from the company that manufactures the airframe next to them, dark, with lots of computer screens where they do what looks a lot like IRC-style chatting next to one another and looking over, connecting to their chains of command, littered with lots of energy drink cans around because they're on duty for something like between eight and, in some cases, 11 hours at a time. And what's next to them is a throttle, is a stick, and they're physically controlling the aircraft in real time. They send it up in the air. They control where it loiters. They stay on station as long as that thing stays on station. And What that means is that we shouldn't think of these things as autonomous creatures. There's a human being controlling them. That increasingly is eroding somewhat. On Tuesday, I was on the deck of the USS George H.W. Bush for something the Navy was super excited about, which was the launch of something called the X-47B. It's a demonstrator aircraft. The thing looks like a bat wing. There's no tail on it. Um, If anyone's a Battlestar Galactica fan, think of a Cylon Raider. It kind of even has the red visor. It's nuts. Uh, It's 62 feet in wingspan, so it's enormous. And unlike any drone, Before it's capable of launching off an aircraft carrier, which is one of the hardest maneuvers in aviation. You're launching and then landing, which is the hardest maneuver in aviation, off of something that moves, that pitches, that rocks, that's affected by the weather, that human beings on a deck have to be exceptionally careful about controlling. It's basically a robotic top gun. It can't land on the thing on the deck yet. They're going to do the first deck landing in either like July or August. It also differs from the Predators and Reapers that you've read a lot about and the robotic helicopters you've read about, and another difference. Everything I said about the ground control station, where a guy's in there and it has a throttle, it has a stick and all that, doesn't apply for the Navy's upcoming drones, which they're calling. Eventually, when this program with the X-47B expires, there's something called U-class for unmanned carrier-launched aerial surveillance and strike. Instead of a human being physically controlling these things at all times, it's lines of code. You've got software programs that basically, through the miracle of algorithm and interaction with GPS, uh, will program in a flight plan for the forthcoming U-class, which should probably enter the Navy. They want somewhere between 2018 and 2020. And then the robot flies. And when you need it to come back down to the deck of the ship, you enter another program and the robot executes it. What they're not doing, what no one in the military is envisioning right now, is autonomizing the decisions and the protocols for striking, for releasing a weapon. That's something that the military takes exceptionally seriously. That's something international law takes even more seriously. Is it technologically possible? You can always figure out a way to automate it. But, like, when you think about it, you know, what's the weapon with the greatest degree of autonomy there is? A landmine. So, you know, when you think about autonomy in drones and particularly autonomy in weapons releases, A, this is something with with a very long history in other weapons technology and B, as of right now, there's a determination inside the military that that's crossing a Rubicon and they don't wanna do that. Will they do it at some point? Mm -hmm. More to the point, the history of the development of this weapons technology, as well as the development of really all civilian technology that we use all the time is the encroachment of automation by very subtle degrees. You can see that in the difference between the way that there's a remote pilot in a Predator and there isn't one for the X 47B and won't be one for its successor, the UQuest program.
0: David Stockman, budget director for President Ronald Reagan, takes a searing look at Washington's fiscal crisis in his new book, The Great Deformation. It counters conventional wisdom within 80 year revisionist history of how the American state, especially the Federal Reserve, has fallen prey to the politics of crony capitalism and the ideologies of fiscal stimulus, monetary central planning, and financial bailouts. He spoke
8: at the Cato Institute in April. What I'd like to do now is suggest that even though there's 700 pages here and there's a lot of history, that really there are three big ideas in this book that I think are pretty much along the libertarian mainstream. I have been a deviant every now and then on certain issues. In fact, uh, I was called a serial apostate (laughs) the other day by uh, some writer, so I never stay always on the straight and narrow, but there are three fundamental ideas, and one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is take these ideas, fiscal rectitude, sound money, we hear that, we know we have a feel for what those mean, free markets, and trace them through the ebb and flow of history and events and Policy decisions and, you know, financial world uh, evolution over decades and decades to try to identify those inflection points, those critical times when choices were made that led in the wrong direction, because obviously today the free market is almost dead. Today, the fiscal equation amounts to a doomsday machine. I don't know how it's gonna be stopped or how the national debt doesn't keep growing towards 30 trillion, 115% of GDP, and I could go into some of those things as well. So what I've tried to do in the book then is to say, how did free markets get abolished, and they did for the most part, or why in the heck did we bail out Wall Street, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, AIG, the auto companies and so forth, And that was done by a Republican administration, so I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom guy, but if a Republican administration does this kind of abomination, then there isn't a lot left in terms of resilience, resonance, I guess I should say, for free market policy in the governing process. So if sound money clearly is out the window, and everybody knows that, but let me give you one number that has really been striking to me. And that is on September 10, 2008, uh, before the Lehman Brothers uh, collapse occurred and then all the madness happened after that. The balance sheet of the Fed was $900 billion, and it had taken the grand total of 94 years to build from zero when they opened the doors to $94 billion and that's important, or 90 billion because billion, 900 billion, I'm sorry, 94 years, and that's important because remember, the balance sheet of the Fed on one side has assets, mostly government debt, bills, bonds, and so forth. On the other side has the liabilities that the Fed has created. In other words, in shorthand, the money that is printed over many, many, many years. Now, if it took them 94 years to print the first 900 billion. And during that period, we had some great Fed chairmen like William McChesney Martin. He's one of the heroes that I have in my book. Some spectacular Fed chairman like Volcker, I really think he was great. And we had some real disasters like uh, Arthur Burns and uh, both uh, Greenspan and Bernanke. So, but still, if it took us 94 years to get there through good and bad policy, listen to this one. In the next seven weeks, Bernanke doubled that 900 billion to 1.8 trillion. He was printing money at the rate of 700 million an hour. No joking. Those are the facts. You can see it on the Fed balance sheet that's uh, issued every Thursday afternoon. Now they've got all kinds of excuses. The Wall Street was melting down, we can get into that lately. No, the bubble they had created in the first four or five years was being deflated. The debt that was being liquidated was bad debt. It never should have been there in the first place. So this was a healthy thing going on, and yet here we are today, and this is why I think the idea of sound money is so lost. A healthy thing is happening, a purge is going on, And yet we have a panic at the Fed that basically ended up propping up all the assets that were way overvalued as the repo debt and commercial paper market debt and unsecured debt was liquidated. The Fed came in right behind it and recreated the funding for this whole house of cards. Now, that is about the worst performance that any central bank could make, and it's led to all kinds of bad things. We can talk about the speculation and so forth. So... If we are today in a world where we have utterly unsound money, where we have a rogue bank that has basically destroyed the financial markets, remember, I think all of you would agree, the interest rate is the price in financial markets. In the money market, the overnight rate is the price of money. In the mid and longer term debt markets, the yield or the interest rate is the price of money. If we don't have a pricing mechanism in something as fluid and dynamic and giant and changing by the hour and minute as the financial system, which is the heart of capitalism, then how is the thing gonna function? Well, we don't. We don't have honest interest rates. We have a Fed that pegs them that sets them, that administers them. And as a result, the whole market has become perverted and it now trades on what the Fed is going to do next month. Whatever smoke signals some highly paid so-called money market economists can figure out You know what the last three swing members of the open market committee uh, may decide to do. And therefore, the market is not discounting the future. It's not discounting risk. It's not discounting the contracts in any particular security that's being valued. It's not discounting cash flow. It's discounting the Politburo, the Monetary Politburo of 12 people and which side of bed they wake up in the morning and what kind of intellectual tick they have uh, this day or that. So it's all <laughs> in bad shape the fundamental things that we believe in, fiscal rectitude, sound money, free markets. The book is how it, about how it happened, the flow of history over time. And in order to make it, and I wouldn't make it more vivid, make it more real, because you can't rewrite you know, 80 years of history even in 700 pages, believe me. So I have basically tried to pinpoint critical inflection points and some of the great actors who came across the stage And I've divided them into 18 policy heroes and 18 policy villains, not because I think they were good or bad people, but at these important junctures, they made good or bad decisions. They led to the decline, to the undermining uh, and erosion of these three core ideas, or they helped uh, keep them alive. Now, let's take fiscal rectitude. And here is where we get to from the abstract to the concrete in a debate that has gone on in the conservative community. I've been involved in the budget fights, or I was for a long time. And I come out on the side of you have to balance the budget, even if you think the spending is too high, after you've given a good, sustained college try at uh, starving the beast or shrinking the budget. So we have this fundamental debate that I'd like to talk about in history for a second on this idea. What is the right strategic route? Starve the beast, we've heard a lot about, or pay the bills? And I come out on the side of pay the bills. The thing that came out of the Reagan era, which really was a horrible legacy, was the notion that deficits didn't matter and the rationalization that we were only trying to starve the beast. And if the deficit got big enough or persistent enough or extended far enough in time, surely they would wake up and shrink the government. Well, it's at 24% of GDP today, 25. By some counts, it was 22 when I got there way back in 1981. So starving the beast hasn't worked. It has only led to a two-party competition in free lunches, the Republicans, being the party of stimulating the economy, and frankly, that's statist, micromanaging the economy through the IRS code, they became what I call the Keynesians of the prosperous classes, versus the Democrats uh, using traditional Keynesian spending and you know liberal interventionist approaches. So when you have two free lunch parties competing for the electorate, you end up with massive, consistent growing, and ultimately uh, incurable national debt, and that's where we are. Sound money. Here is where I have a big demarcation line in my book between Milton Friedman's folly and Carter Glass's wisdom. And I'm not talking about Glass-Steagall. I'm talking about Carter Glass, chairman of the House Banking Committee, founder of the Fed, who envisioned the Fed as a banker's bank that on a passive basis ran a discount window where real live commercial banks, Main Street banks as he called them, the banks of industry and commerce, could bring their good collateral, let's say inventory loans or receivables that had already been produced and shipped but not matured, could bring them to the discount window and borrow money at a penalty rate above the free market interest rate that the Fed was supposed to have nothing to do with. Now, the model of the Bankers Bank that was behind uh, the original conception and Carter Glass's idea had two features which are unbelievably novel today. One is that the Fed in its first uh, statute was not allowed to buy government debt it was only allowed to liquefy real commercial paper that represented economic activity coming out of the private enterprise system as a result of the to and fro of commerce and not because of what someone sitting on a board in Washington thought was necessary in terms of bank reserves and so forth. Now, that idea of a passive banker's bank is the opposite of the open market committee to be in the debt markets day in and day out, buying debt, buying debt, to peg interest rates because they're trying to manage the whole financial system and the whole GDP. As Bernanke said, we're gonna get the unemployment rate to 6.5% or some damn thing, and he can't even measure it. Now that's central planning. That's the opposite principle. That is the central bank actively intervening in the market to say this is how much liquidity we think ought to be in the economy. This is what the rate of debt creation ought to be. These are the interest rates that in our wisdom we decide will bring about all these wondrous things. Now I call that monetary central planning. I call that the Monetary Politburo, because there are 12 people deciding, you know, what the uh, liquidity of the financial markets ought to be and the financial system. It's the opposite of the Carter Glass notion. And the the Carter Glass notion, even though a lot of people identify him only with Glass-Steagall, which I actually support as well, But the Carter Glass notion was that there is no target GDP. It was not like Professor Krugman or even Art Laffer who says, you know, the GDP ought to grow at 4%, and if it isn't, then you ought to do this, that, and the other thing to make it happen in Washington. The idea that came out of the original uh, Glass uh, Central Bank was that GDP will be whatever it is. If it grows at 2%, fine. 4% fine, if it goes through a period where it's only growing, you know, half a percent or negative, that's okay too. That's the result of the interaction of producers, consumers, investors, real people in the free market. And therefore, the free market is incompatible with central bank monetary planning. And the kind of Fed that came out of Friedman 's idea, and I know you know his defenders uh, will find this uh, you know very uh, much <laughs> they 'll contest this very much, but it is the opposite because it said a board of twelve people could decide how much m one we need, and therefore knowing how much m one we need, they would know how much credit would be created by the banking system, and if the banking system created the right amount of credit, the economy would grow at the right rate. Actually, Milton Friedman was a central planner, and he didn't know it, and he was naive politically because how can he have believed, which he did, that if we give 12 members of a Politburo after we've severed the Bretton Woods and the gold standard and any linkage of what the central bank does to a redeemable asset, Once you give that power to the 12 members of the Open Market Committee, you end up with a Politburo. Now here's the dilemma. Friedman was a very naive man. He was an idealistic man, but somehow he appears to have believed that 12 monetary eunuchs could get uh, appointed to the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, and they would sit around most of the day reading book reviews and playing Scrabble or something and occasionally uh, change the dials a little bit to keep the money supply growth at three percent. Well that wasn't going to happen and you saw that immediately when they closed the gold window and they turned great professor Arthur Burns loose to print all the money that Nixon wanted in order to get the economy booming by July 1972 which I have it all in my book. That's exactly what the White House taped system shows that he told um, uh, uh, Er Ehrlichman and Haldeman he wanted done uh, well before Camp David and all that mess. So unfortunately, uh, Friedman's idea got used by a statist nationalistic politician for his own short-term electoral needs. He brought all of the free market economists of the era out to Camp David, and as you remember, they came up with the NEP, and uh, that was, uh, even at the time, I was only a young man in Washington. I don't know if David was there yet. But even then, I um, almost bent over laughing because I knew the NEP stood for the new economic uh, Program plan that Lenin put into place in 1921 in order to bail out his huge experiment in collectivism and communism, which was failing. Now, the, the third thing is free markets. And my point is... Um, Bad money pollutes free markets and therefore we don't have, uh, we can't say today that if some outcome occurs in the financial markets that that is an honest result of the interaction of supply and demand. As I said, all the markets are simply trading the Fed, front running the Fed, buying anything that they think is going to be propped up, supported uh, or liquefied by the Fed It's totally distorting behavior, and as a result of that, it leads to massive gambling and to leverage and to rent-seeking behavior that has nothing to do with economic growth, wealth creation, or productivity, but gives capitalism a bad name, gives free markets a bad name. And the problem is a lot of free market people, in my judgment, misunderstand the application of the free market principle to Wall Street. Wall Street is not a market. Wall Street is a branch office of the Federal Reserve. And so therefore you can't judge what's going on there under some kind of notion that uh, it happened in the market and so therefore the outcome is okay. Now, that's why I think the bailouts in, that, in 2008 were so insidious. They, and I say in my book, we had a coup d'etat, effectively, an economic coup d'etat, by Goldman and the other bankers who occupied the third floor of the Treasury. And finally, by September 2008, the rot on the balance sheets of these big investment banks, which were really hedge funds in drag, really, or in disguise, um, was so bad that they toppled under their own weight. And finally, Mr. Market was raising his hand, saying, let me bring this nonsense to a halt. Let me liquidate these, you know, this house of cards, this layer upon layer of create an asset, bid up the price, borrow money against it, buy some more of the same assets, drive them higher, use that as collateral. It's called hypothecation, -hypothecation, rehypothecation, rehypothecation. It is the same thing as fractional reserve banking, and some of you students of that know the problem once uh, you get the string going.
0: Take advantage of the Cato Institute's summer book sale now through Labor Day. Save 25% on all print books by using the code SUMMER13 at checkout or save 50% on all ebooks with the code EBOOK50. These savings are only available through the Cato Institute's online bookstore, so visit cato.org/store today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.